Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people and real stories. A local podcast for local artists. Welcome back to Afternoon Delay and a big thank you to Miss Peaches for our last episode. That was honestly one of the most fun, energised episodes I've had in a while. Um, very apt for her drag aesthetic and who she is. Now, something has been brought to my attention in the last sort of 24 hours that I think I should probably offer some feedback on. We at Afternoon Delight strive to make sure that we are inclusive of all artists, all kind of artists, which is why I've had drag artists, drag kings, queens, non-binary artists, physical theatre performers, um, actors, musicians, you know, everyone. We've had literally a dietitian for an episode, do you know? And one of the things I've always done in the last three seasons of Afternoon Delight is let it be a guest-led interview that... Guests are always given the questions, but things are brought to my attention that I never expect. And I go, right, well, let's go with this. And my main goal in every interview of Afternoon Delight is to give the artist their chance to talk about their experiences and their voices. Um, and I want everyone to always know that I am always in my life trying to learn, educate myself and move forward with everything I do. And I am glad that things are always brought to my attention. But I wanted to just clarify that I am not the kind of artist, obviously, in the previous episodes who would ever disconnect or disengage with all kind of audiences. Um, and I think that was an important conversation to have. So, yeah, it's been such a great three seasons. I'm continuing to learn and always welcome feedback on guests and the experiences moving forward. So thank you. So that brings me to my next guest, who is very much also behind educating her audiences. She is a playwright, prose fiction writer, um, performer, activist, sex aware facilitator. She is the full package. She is absolutely full package. And she's got a lot to share with all of you, which I think is so exciting. Her night smut slam has ran in various cities and countries around the world internationally. And it is without a doubt such a privilege to introduce our next guest. I spoke as a judge for one of their Smut Slams in 2019 in Edinburgh, and I met her, and she just continued to educate myself on a lot of things that I did not anticipate when I'd arrived on consent, um, respect, sex education, a lot of things. And um, to share with you the absolute incredible artist and icon that is Cameron Moore. Welcome back to Afternoon Delight with Mr. Jordy Delight. Oh my gosh. She is across the seas international, but she is here doing an interview with me. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story. I discovered I was sex positive when I was asked to go and be a judge for an iconic event in Edinburgh called Smut Slam. And it felt only right to get artist and erotic prose, fiction, writer, and overall incredible, incredible person in the community for the sex positive world. It is, of course, Cameron Moore. How are you doing? I'm doing so well, Jordy. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, this is honestly, do you know, I said this to you before we started. I was so 
excited that you said yes to come on the show because it's such an important part for me. But I can imagine for the Smutslam community, this is probably going to help a lot of them who are missing the live events. Yeah, it is something, um, Smutslam being what it is, a very kind of like intensely energized in-person event when it happens, right? It, it, um, the size of the events vary, but this is a community dirty storytelling gathering, open mic, and um, you get a lot of people together in a room. Obviously, we, we, we most of us know what that feels like to be in that room and to be caught up in that energy. And uh, it, it's, it's I, I like, one of the things that I'm doing right now is uh, when I talk online to people is, is remind folks and my Smut Slam family that we are still going on and there is still something to be gained um, from the work that we're doing and you don't just you can't you can't just set things aside things aside and hibernate while a pandemic's going on life does go on you know and so uh, so hopefully some of that energy that caught you yank, uh, is going to kind of keep reaching out to people as well yeah and I think for me one of the things during the pandemic was being able to suss out who in my life was giving me energy and who was draining energy it's such a mm -hmm. hard thing to realize and you're so right that putting that good energy out there for that community especially really will help and I think this is why we've got here so I'm so excited to have you on Afternoon Delight so for my listeners could you introduce yourself yeah uh so I am um I have done many things in my performing life but I am a late bloomer when it comes to performing I only started doing uh, my solo work when I turned 39 so I'm now 50, um, but in the last 11 years, I've really uh, pushed myself out there as I discovered more and different things that I enjoy doing and that people seem to enjoy watching me do. So there's theater. I'm a, a playwright and performer, entirely solo works at this point. I've done seven shows, working on my eighth show um, now. And, um, you know, in writing, I say award-winning it's re I really have won awards, but I don't like to go on about that. So anyway, that playwright performer. Um, I've done um, erotic fiction on a typewriter out on a sidewalk uh, for people in busy night districts, um, just for money, but also for fun, but also to, to fuck people's heads up. Um, so that's been fun. Yeah, um, I have done, I was a phone sex operator for, for nearly eight years and that really affected kind of how I approach things. And you know, I, I will say, you know, I, I, I'm an educator. I do classes on dirty talk, workshops, and, and um, I've done stand-up comedy as a way of getting into storytelling. I'm definitely a storyteller, and that is one of the top things that I would say about myself now is that, you know, I founded the Smut Slam Network, which feels really good. Um, this started in, in 2011 in Boston in, in the United States. Um, I was tired of... Uh, going to storytelling events and feeling like I was the dirtiest fucking perv in that room, right? I would tell stories about my sex life, not to be titillating, but just because I feel that sex events can be important stories to tell. And uh, I would go there and I would ask the host, um, can I tell these kind of stories? And they'd always say yes, but the audiences would always be like, no. Right, So I would go and tell those things and I finally got fed up with it. I said, I know there are more people who A, want to tell those stories and B, want to listen to those stories. And so I started the first Smut Slam there and it would travel around with me when I went to fringe festivals. Uh, I would do my own solo shows and then I would do a Smut Slam on top of that. Uh, by 2015, 
I was getting inquiries, people who wanted to see Smut Slam happening in their town more often than once a year when I would be visiting. Mm. So I, I finally started franchising that, like franchising it. Branches have formed. And then I moved over to this side of the Atlantic and started doing stuff in the United Kingdom. And then I moved to Berlin and started doing stuff in mainland Europe. And so it's all kind of spread a little bit, but it's all around Smut Slam. And that's a very unifying, important kind of set of rules and expectations and how we talk about sex. And so that's the part that I love. Smut Slam, storyteller, community facilitator. And I think for me, like one of the things that um, resonates with me with that was with Afternoon Delight, the second episode I did of Afternoon Delight, where three seasons now, the second one was working a sex worker and BBC producer who wants to um, discuss decriminalisation of sex workers. And, you know, this has been such an important thing for me. So I'm I'm quite, in a way, because Afternoon Delight season three is the last season, it feels fully rounded now to come back to this with you. So it's mm. it's such an important conversation. And I love, you know, I am a storyteller. I'm a writer like you, a playwright, and I am a storyteller. But for me, I've, been, I've done a lot of writing that's been a bit tongue-in-cheek um, in the mm. past. So, you know, me being this really confident, outspoken person with sex, like in my community, in the queer community, like on nights out and stuff. I've always been like, oh no, I'm really comfortable talking about, you know, that I have sex and I enjoy it. Like, why would you not, you know? But when I watched everyone giving all their amazing stories and anecdotes on the microphone, I thought this liberation I'm getting is a sense of freedom and I'm here for it. So I'm so glad when you were doing it and people kind of went, oh no, I'm not really sure. Or they kind of made those judgmental faces you've went, to hell with us I'm gonna do it my way and I'm just like yes yes like we need make that. some space for it like make some fucking space for it now I want to I want to differentiate between what you and I do as performers because we've got performing experience and even if we are telling our own true authentic stories um we have cultivated I guess the armor or the psychic sort of um d- defenses a little bit where we can say these things to an audience of people I can look in a room full of 100 strangers and say like I love sucking cock I can just say it straight to their face and I won't even I won't even blink right but like most people don't have those experiences so for them being at a smut slam and talking about their own experience is really raw it's really vulnerable and it's like it's absolutely defenseless it's like it's like you look at them up there on stage, it's like a crab taking off all of its shell and just standing up there, this soft, gooey thing and saying, love me. You know, it's, it's like, it's absolute, like, exactly. It's so cute. These cute little soft crabs, like up there with no defenses. And that I think is part of what moves me most about making space for civilian storytellers to tell their stuff because they haven't rehearsed. They haven't ever told that story before, perhaps. They haven't got the the, the, the emotional fortitude to withstand a front row going like this, you know? Uh, so that for me is, is the really exciting thing. Cause you said liberation. It's like, it's liberation for us cause we're performers and that feels good to be out there. But when somebody for the first time is telling a story ever in a microphone, that's incredibly liberating to watch. And that's um, one of the things I feel so honored to be able to facilitate yep. through Smut Slam. I totally agree. I'm so glad that you brought that up as well, because, yeah, for us as performers and writers, you know, that's our job, whereas for some people, it genuinely is actually a raw experience that's um, it's exposing in a way, but it's such a beautiful thing to see, and it really helps shape people. So you're just doing such incredible work doing that. Thanks. One, I can't believe you, you know, say you're 50. Like, I would, you are looking gorgeous and living... Uh. Your- 
I would never have known. This is what 50 looks like. I don't know. I think it's partly being fat. It keeps the skin filled out a little bit. It gives you that luscious kind of tender sort of like, hmm. Um, no, I have, I have, people have said that and I try not to let that be a thing uh, because of course, um, ageism is a really a thing, especially in the performance world. And I, and I, as a late bloomer, I am constantly aware of it, how how far I feel behind people who've been doing it for as long as I have, but maybe 10, 15, 20 years younger, mm. right, than I am. So it's, it's a little bit weird that way. Uh, but, I mean, thank you. I'm glad I, I you know, look a little fresh. Uh, but uh, I think also it might be a function to uh, people look at – performers who are like I was touring a lot right mm -hmm. and I'm I wear quite like young inappropriately young fashions you know like I'm not wearing uh not to be ageist like I'm not wearing sedate any damn thing right there's nothing sedate yep. um and I think people look at that and they just the minds can't comprehend that I might be that old and so they just kind of scale back 10 to 15 years and that's like you know Okay, because they can't conceive of someone who should be like, who, sh who could be a grandma by now, touring around the world, sleeping on other people's couches, right? That doesn't compute. <laughs> it's just so funny because you're just like starting revolutions, aren't you? Like you're just changing ah. things. I love it. So, you know, one of the things you said was obviously um, you are a writer and stuff and, and you worked solo and done your own shows and stuff, you know. Mm. But let's go back to the beginning, you know, where did you grow up, study, work, live before you pursued the arts? You know, what was your life like? Ah, uh, um, so I, I think sometimes when I think about um, how I got to be doing what I'm doing, m most of my creative life or creative trajectory was less of a direct trajectory and more... Um, kind of triangulating, right? I kept getting closer to it, but not quite on it because I wasn't quite confident that I could do it. So for example, uh, I, when I was younger, I wanted, when I was a child, I wanted to be the great American novelist. I didn't know what that meant. I had never read a novel at that point, but I, I just, I was like, I want to write a big book that people like. Um, and, uh, and then as I grew older, I got kind of scared away from that. Like, I didn't know what was involved that might be too personal. So I started studying journalism and I was, and I was interested in that. And then I was like, oh, it's a lot of work. Jesus Christ, freelance. And so I went into, mm, I went into library work uh, because, oh, I'm near books at least. Right. And so I, and then, and then I was like, but I want to be near writing. And so I started copy editing and proofreading mm. and, and, and journalism back to journalism. So I just kept like angling around this sort of creative expression um, that might involve me being personal. That felt too risky. So I just kept dancing around it in my choices of careers. And so there's nothing that's so far off. Uh, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, at one point I was doing marketing for a publishing company. Again, all related to books and writing and other people's writing. Other people's writing. Or, like journalism, reporting on things that weren't really that personal. Sometimes I did get a little personal in my writing. I would do, like, columns about food or whatever and I would get a little personal and that felt great but also like oh god that's too much that's way too much and so I mean I feel like I kind of knew what direction I was going in but I didn't really know how to get there and then um yeah uh then I started uh I started dancing uh late uh again a late bloomer at the age of 29 or 30 um, yeah, so this is overlaid on top of this whole history that I just mentioned of employment history. Um, so I started dancing 
because I just love to dance. And then I, I found that being in the dance, whatever, dance world, I was, I was fat back then too. Um, and I would go to these junior college classes where everyone was 10 years younger than me and uh, a lot thinner. And I just felt so out of it. I was incredibly, I was also like a butch dyke at the time, very butch in presentation. And um, I would go to these classes and feel very alone, but I love to dance. And so um, I started... Um, yeah, I guess it, it, in addition to knowing what I want to do, I always, if I find that I want to do something that there's no support for, I'll just make the support happen. Right. So I was in these dance program, like feeling so alone and like, there's no support for me here as a fat person. What the fuck? So I'll just start my own organization. Cause I'm not the only one. Clearly I'm not going to be the only one. So I started my own organization, uh, to support, encourage, um, yeah, people, fat people for, for dancing. And we made it, like, it was all for all sizes, but centering fat people. Um, and this was in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that got started. It was workshops and all that stuff. So I guess I combined the sort of love of creative expression with also an activist bent. I always want to make things better in the world, right? So I'm not just, like, learning to feel strong in my own dance, but, like, I will fucking make it so that other people can feel strong in their dance as well. And so that's what led me to think, well, I might like performing. I might, but I always, I didn't want it to be perceived as a vanity project. So I always was making space and dances and shows for the other dancers to perform in more than me. It wasn't supposed to be a showcase for me. Wow. Yeah. And eventually then, um, well, then it all crashed, came crashing down in the, um, uh, around the recession of 2008, 2009, when everything went tumbling down, I lost my job at the publishing company and was still performing, but also no one was really in the mood for that. And then I had to start doing something that made money again because I was out of a job, so I started doing phone sex. And um, they do say to write about what you know, right? That's one of those things. They say, write what you know. Yeah. And when what you know is like a 14 by 14 foot room and a telephone and strange man talking about the wanking, then you write about it. So I wrote my first solo play based on my work as a phone sex operator. And that's, that's where things really took off for me as Cameron Moore and my specific kind of area of focus. So it all feels like it was channeling in that direction, but it didn't really kick off until I was about, until I was 39. Yeah. That's an incredible journey, Cameron. Thank you so much. <laughs> and for me, you know, I um, have had such a summer life to you um, at 26, you know, I'm still doing that thing of like working out, you know, I always wanted to perform, but I'm just not sure what and how, do you know what I mean? Like I'm mm. like, cause drag was never under my radar at school. Drag was yeah. seen um, like on television with Lily Savage and Dame Edna. It wasn't me looking glamorous doing uh, sort of autobiographical pieces similar to yours actually. Mm. Um, so yeah, I totally, um, totally relate to all that. I think it's interesting because you talk about how being near books, being a journalist, you know, clearly you are at heart a storyteller. That's what it is. And you say this about the, the great American novel. Clearly it was a, I want to be a storyteller, but I just don't know how and where I'm going to be if I do it. And look now, like, you know, you've said there, like you were working um, in this job and then recession happened and then you became a phone sex worker to obviously just make money and, and live your life, really. Mm-hmm. It's that thing, isn't it, right? What you know, like when I did my first show, Wasted Youth, and I said, right, I want to do um, like having CF and that big sort of crutch of it, but also everything that happened in between. And I feel like I knew what I was writing about. Do you know what I mean? I knew yeah. what I was writing about. It's like um, 
like so many other things. Like I'm in commission. I've been commissioned to do a new piece just uh, this week mm-hmm. about transformative effects of medication, and it's a it's a piece about CF, but it's about the good stuff because there's new medication in CF that's changed everything in the last year. Yeah. And I thought to myself, God, this is the first time I've been excited to create work about having CF because it's not sad, it's all positive. And it's, you know, it's because, yeah, two years ago, things weren't great. So that's why I wrote it that way. But now it's, it's good. Like, so why wouldn't I? But uh, I totally relate. So, you know, talk me through some of the highlights of your work before Smut Slam then, you know, your pieces of work you've created and wrote and performed. Yeah. Um, Like not all of them, not all of them are award-winning. Some of them are, um, but uh, they, for, for a lot of them have to do with sex or sound like they have to do with sex. Um, Phone Whore was my first play. Um, it's the one that I've done more than any other, probably close to 230 times, 240 times. But that's in 10 years, right? That's in 10 years. Uh, it's, still, it's still a lot. It's still a lot. And that's, I've done it online uh, through a Zoom thing, which works really well, obviously. Well, that, there's no obvious about it. Not every theater piece works on Zoom, but this is because... The play itself is me talking to my audience about my experience doing this work while on call. So I'm talking to them, but then the phone rings and I take the call while they're still watching. So it's a very eavesdroppy experience for the audience wherever they are, whether in whether they're in a uh, theater with me or on Zoom. So that that worked out really well. Um, so that was my first one, and then I went on to do a couple other ones that were expansions of questions that people were asking me after phone war because that was a very hard-hitting piece and went deep and far and people don't really know what goes into phone sex and I phone whore shows them what goes into phone sex right? right um and so the next few pieces that I did were kind of related to that and then um um, I would say, like, if I were to say, like, oh, the real highlights, because I love all the work that I've done, but the real highlights uh, were for me, phone whore. And then in 2016, after two or three years of hacking away at it, uh, I uh, made a show called Nerdfucker, which is not what you think it is. It's actually not a, a, a sex farce at all. It is, uh, it is a one-woman show, but it's a... Uh, like a psycho thriller drama unfolding on stage uh, where she is talking about how much she loves these nerds and especially the one she's with and she's getting ready. I'm not going to reveal all of it, but she's getting ready for like this big nerd event that she is helping to do because she loves nerds so much, especially (laughs) her boyfriend. But as she talks about all these things related to it, it becomes clear that she has become so used to abasing herself in the service of other people's nerdiness and smartness and talents um, that she has completely entered into abuse territory. She's completely allowed herself. Yeah. And you watch her make these sort of like realizations over and over about this. And it's quite terrifying. Uh, it's not just the abuse. It's like, it's the, it's the fact that she talked herself into it and she's waking up to it. So the watching someone wake up to a reality, like that they didn't know anything about, Um, it's quite intense and I love it so much. The thing is, right. I got used to doing most of these shows on the fringe circuit, first in North America, then in the UK. And I'm sure, you know, and probably a lot of your viewers know too, like the fringe circuit can be really relentless in terms of demanding things from people in North America, especially, um, it's, well, I don't know, especially, but like on the fringe, People talk about like festivals will talk about like how how edgy they are, how on the edge, how, you know, it's oh this and that. But actually, it's a lot of comedy. It's a lot of sparkle, 
no offense about sparkles. Like I have nothing against sparkle, but not everyone does sparkle. Not everyone does sparkle. And, and sparkle doesn't automatically make it good, right? Um, so, but a lot of what's out there is meant to be like family friendly, funny, inspiring, uplifting, like those sorts of things are what tend to be really popular. Um, not a lot of people go to theater to be dragged down, to be like clutched around the heart and shaken until your head feels a little unsafe, right? Um, so Nerdfucker um, also won awards, also got amazing fucking reviews, um, and it's my favorite, but it's, uh, after those two pieces, um, I've been seized by a little bit of the, oh my God, what if I can never write something that good again? Because I really think they're really fucking good, <laughs> you know? It's like, oh my God, how can I live up to this? No pressure on myself. The other one that I'm most uh, fond of um, uh, is, is the last one I did. It's called Muse, where I do, I facilitate a life drawing session where I am the subject. And this is based on my experience. I have done, been a life model uh, here in Berlin. Um, and so I, I facilitate this session and I run it like a regular life drawing session. Audience members are sitting around me and I arrange for them to have free drawing supplies so they can sit there and draw. And they're not all, like most of them that came to the show, I ran it in the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. Uh, most people who showed up were not artists. There were a few artists who found out about it as a drawing session, like sweet, a drawing session. But most people were coming to it as a storytelling event because while I was modeling, uh, I would tell stories about my body, about doing life modeling, about being a fat person out on the street and in the studio and how that felt. And I would answer questions that they wanted to ask. And so um, that ended up being super powerful, I think, for me and for a lot of the watchers because um, when nakedness is obviously another form of vulnerability. And normally when we see naked people in the society, we're not in a position to be asking them questions, right? There's very obviously a power dynamic and there's our sets of circumstances. Like you don't talk to the stripper. You don't talk to the art model. You don't, you don't get to talk to anyone doing porn or visual art. You know, they're just there to be looked at. And in this case, I'm the, I'm the object, but I'm also the subject in this, in this encounter. And I think that Muse ended up being, it was unscripted, right? I tell some of the same stories, but mostly I'm responding to audience as opposed to my other works, which were all scripted. So it was a new space for me as well. Um, so those would be the highlights of my kind of more performing style stuff. Um, That's honestly incredible. That phrase, it's like, I was the object, but I was a subject. That is a, a tagline for that show. That is incredible, say, phrasing it that way. You know, it's it's incredible, actually, to hear all that, because when you talk about this friend, the fringe for any place and sort of the glitz and the glamour people want, you know, there are audiences. It's like anything, there are audiences that want to go and see hard-hitting theatre live art, and there are people that want to go see, like, and this is not invalidating anyone's work, but, you know, really fun. Um, the best way I can compare it, actually, would be that in my work, I do what they call in Scotland, I don't know if you've heard of this phrase, it might be all over the world, actually. It's called anti-drag, and the Divine David used to um, yeah. define it this way. And it was doing drag in the most unconventional way that people would expect. And for me, on all my work, it's been... I'm in drag, but let me talk about having CF and sexual assault, or mm. I'm in drag and let me talk about transplants and organ donation, you know, mm. out mm. a new show um, with a theatre company. 
that's all about my shielding experience during the pandemic last year at the beginning and sort of my um, light switch moments where I realized a lot of relationships I'd been in were quite toxic and horrible. But that sort mm. of, that light switch moment um, in the show would be, you know, sort of actually I've been in love with the wrong people my whole life. What have I been doing? Yeah. And and it's, but the thing is with my work, it's always been people come and go. And I think it can be similar of your work that if people hear sex, they go, oh, fun. And then you go and then it becomes a whole different layer. And with yes. me, in much the same sort of, text style that they go oh drag yes and by the end they're blubbering away because they didn't realize yes. be something really serious so yeah yeah it's I, I have had a number of people say something like it's not what I expected but it's it turned out to be something that I really needed yeah. um yeah and all of I don't know what it is all of my like I'm really good at titling things I'm really good at coming up with titles um rip part and I I always check. I always check them, and I'm like, "Is this really saying what I wanted to say?" And especially with Nerdfucker, if you don't have people reading the program description, they are going to show up, and it's going to be like, you know, "Oh, I love fucking smart people," Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, that's not what it is. Um, let's talk about why. And um, um, but I, I still, if you were to see it, you'd be like, "Yeah, that's the only title you could use." That's right. Mm-hmm. So when it comes, we've obviously touched already on Smut Slam. Um, so I guess for me, it's why is the sex positive community so important to you? And do you connect with it so much then? Um, I want to say that it's like it, the sex positive community is important to me and I do connect with it, but I'm not in a lot of ways. I intersect with it as opposed to being squarely in the middle of it. All right. Um, Part of that's because personally, I don't go to a lot of, there's a lot of workshops and gatherings and play parties and, and, and things like that. And um, that's not of interest to me personally. So I think I miss out on some networking opportunities there. I don't know. Uh, but like it's, but as I, I call what I do when I have a chance to explain myself, I call it less sex positive and more sex aware, right? Mm-hmm. Sex aware. Because um, to be aware of how important sex can be for many people, to be aware of its impacts, both positive and negative, to be aware that there are people who who don't want any sex versus people who want a lot of sex all the time. Because I think the, the, the sex positive community has definitely, the meanings around that have accreted uh, in such a way that it, it feels a little confining in terms of like, you've always got to be, woo! sex yeah and I am but also there's so much more that goes around it and um and how you talk about sex and how you are with sex it it affects other parts of your life as well in ways that aren't sexy in ways that are dramatic or Mm -hmm. awkward or anything and that's um like not to I don't mean to distance myself from that but I wanted to say like the way that I conceive of Mm, sex awareness is a little bit broader than sex positivity Mm -hmm. that I, you know, I do hope that everyone gets the amount or none of the sex that they want, you know, and, and, you know, and what they do. Um, but it is for many people, um, a fairly major part of, of life. And the idea that we can be pleasure seeking, pleasure seeking for ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, is still radical that we should want pleasure. And it's, um, it's, that feels, that feels just like such an important part of the human experience that I want to give platform to that. And I want to give space for that and honor all the stuff that goes into that. Um, 
Mm. And uh, so that does include, like, definitely the people who go out to orgies. We get great stories from people who go out to orgies, but also includes people who've, who've never had an orgasm at the age of 47, for example, or 57. There has to be room for all of that. And, and room for people to talk about those experiences, not be mocking those experiences, mm-hmm. not be othering those experiences, but this is all in the same umbrella of the human sexual experience. Mm. Thank- That's the way that I approach it. Thank you. And thank you for clarifying. That was really helpful and useful for me and for anyone listening, actually. And for me, the biggest thing I actually found really inspiring and, and helpful um, and educational with Smut Slam when I judged that night was the, I think it's called, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it the fuck bucket? There's the sort of... Yeah, fuck the, bucket. And when you were reading them out and you at the beginning were like, no, listen, like we don't read we don't read anonymous stories that are like sex shaming, slut shaming that are really negative and consent is of our biggest thing. And I was sitting thinking, God, there's so much to consent education I didn't realise. And didn't, and again, even just the sort of sex shaming, you know, for me, I think there's been times in the queer community that I've experienced as I've talked about my work where... Um, when I was quite well known when I was just turned 18 in the gay scene um, if I'd kissed a guy one night in my work it would be oh I'd clearly had sex with him and it became like that every week and I really didn't like that and I would talk openly about it doesn't really matter if I did or I didn't it doesn't really concern any of you how much I have sex it's for me and the person involved but that's the thing when you talk about this that that's so um, accurate could you chat more about that sort of stuff about Smut Slam as well that Oh, you mean about people making assumptions about what goes into... I think just the ethos of doing the fuck bucket and all these other things that people would expect. Yeah, like, so, again, like, this is, this is, this is, comes back to people's expectations, right? We talked about, like, oh, what they expect from nerd fucker, phone whore. Sounds like fun. Oh, it's going to be fun. They, you say smut slime, you say it's dirty stories. Like, oh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. But, like, what's really at the core of many people's sexual experiences? I'm not going to say it's traumatic, but it covers a lot of of ground. And so when I'm reading something that's real awkward or when I'm reading something that, that somebody says that it's like, um, um, sometimes I fake orgasm just because I'm tired or just because I'm bored with what my boyfriend is doing. Ooh, kid, kid, like that's a hard one to read. That's like a lot. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's my job as the person who is channeling these for people, answering the questions or just reading their confessions out loud to not judge them i can respond to them based on my own person like wow okay Mm -hmm. but not judge them and say like that's the wrong way to be about orgasms i can say well i hope that you find a way to have authentic orgasms soon because that's not a that that doesn't feel great after a while but like you're bad for doing that everyone has reasons for doing what they're doing right and and so trying to as little as possible to to judge people for what they confess um and leave that open because honestly, the fuck bucket is the way that the whole room gets involved with the event, right? Because yeah. not everyone's brave enough to get up to the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone wants to do that. But if you have something anonymous built into it, people can can share things and they can feel they can sit back there and go like, she read my thing. Mm-hmm. She smiled about it. She read my thing. You know, and then, like it makes them feel like they are contributing, and they are. It's not even a wrong feeling. They are contributing to the environment of sharing and that everyone in this room is putting something towards the community feast, you know, know, that's important. That is important. You know, it's so funny, but when I was obviously judging, I wasn't in drag that night um, quite well and was a bit poorly. So I was like, if I had been in drag, I would a hundred percent had a glass of wine and then got on stage and went, let me tell you my life. But because I was at a drag, I felt really insecure and was like, Oh, Mm. 
and you did the fuck bucket. I remember I put in a story and you did read one of my answers and the room, it wasn't actually a funny one because I was, a, I was in quite a bad place at that time as well. So I'd wrote, I think it was something quite wholesome and I'd, I'd be lying if I remember, I think it was something like, I had sex recently and it was the first time I felt fully in it and you'd said it and everyone was like, oh, that's so lovely clapping. And oh, yeah. Like, oh my God, I was vulnerable and I feel safe, love this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so many people in their lives do not have this support and safety and mm. uh, affirmation or validation at all. And so even if you're getting it anonymously, you still get to see, I mean, if anything, it's the purest form of validation because nobody knows who you are. No one's going to be looking at you and, and, and checking their responses to you. Mm. They just know you're in the room and you need to hear something. You need to hear something. And they give it to you. And it's like, that's fucking brilliant. I love doing it. <laughs> so what has life been like during the pandemic? You know, um, please do let, feel free to share as much as you want. But did you do any online Smut Slam events? And, and um, what's it been like, you know, like the pandemic life for you and in general, the communities? What do you feel like it's been like? Um, so Smut Slam has been running nonstop since the beginning. I did my last two in-person slams of before the pandemic, um, in, 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 uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow in the, in that March, March, 2020, uh, 2012, I, or, uh, March 12th was the one in Glasgow and already people were getting it like we had people not showing up for the event. Uh, I wiped down the I wiped down the microphone stand with uh, sanitizer, and people were like, "Oh, this feels really weird to be talking in a microphone." Little did we know, it's like it's not talking in the microphone; it's it's just in the room, right? Um, but uh, you know, people were already starting to feel a little dodgy about it. And then you know, two days later, I was planning on doing a slam in Berlin when I got back home, and then but two days later, everything closed. Um, and we pivoted so fast that sometimes I feel like my neck still hurts from it, right? Like we, 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 we pivoted, we went online so fast because um, um, I don't know why, it just felt like a, a fuck you to, you know, to, to COVID. Like you can, you can close the spaces, but we're still here. And I, honestly, stubbornness is one, of my, uh, is one of my dominant personality traits. And so <laughs> when I started doing that, it's like we've been going, we went weekly at first, then we cut down uh, to bi-weekly, and now we've been going bi-weekly now since June. About, yeah, so every other week. So we are doing online slams throughout the pandemic. We have not stopped. Um, and um, of course people are having online burnout. Of course people want to go to in-person slams again. Um, and of course we in the network and me personally with the slams that I host, we're definitely like looking, when can we do things safely? We did three... Uh, outdoor slams in Berlin last summer and early fall. Um, and uh, we, we hope that we get a chance to do that again this year. But um, I, I think I, I had to come around to that quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. So the listeners, obviously, they have, we all have our own shit to deal with right now, right? But I personally, I remember the first month that I was doing online slams before the slams, every time I'd sit there in the kitchen just going, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to do this. I'm not for the camera. The camera is not my thing. I need to be live. I'm not, you know, and I would just sit there like almost crying some days. He's going, this sucks. And I was not uh, the queen, as you can see now, of keeping eye contact with the camera. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Um, I hated it. 
And then I slowly got used to it. And then last fall in November, it clicked to me a little bit that like we had small, the online slams are quite intimate, uh, quite cozy uh, sometimes. But, you know, I mean, it's still a reasonable small slam. You know, we have usually at least between like 15 to 20 people in the house, sometimes more, depending on whether everyone's got their polycules with them that night. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I realized that it's not about like, I'm not trying to, break the bank i'm not trying to you know run out of space in my zoom room i'm just keeping the light on so that people know that smut slam is still here and that we are still carrying the spirit right um that that so that felt important so no matter how how hard it would feel some weeks if it was a particularly like smaller audience or whatever um i needed to keep the light on for my community Mm-hmm. so that they knew. And I needed to keep the light on for myself as a performer. I needed to have something regular that I was going back to to remind myself. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I want to say this. When we're talking about like going back to in-person things, going back to normality, right? Um, um, I know a lot of people are like, oh, I can't wait to be done with that crap and back out into a theater. We will always have an online slam. Even when I start to do in-person slams again, we will always have one online slam a month because what we're finding, and this is, I think people around the world hopefully woke up to this during the pandemic and will remain awake to it, um, is that people with um, disabilities have access problems all the time, all the time, getting to events, getting into spaces, being able to leave the house, being able to prep to leave the house, having enough spoons to get there. You know, it's like all this stuff that the whole world had problems with this last year. Being able to go to work or not, work from home. It's like the world found a way to make these things possible. And I think it would be the height of injustice to pull that away. We've all seen it. We know that we can run shows online. We know you can work from home. We know you can do all this stuff. I'm not, I for one, I'm not going to pull away the one like a show uh, once a month for like whoever wants to show up from wherever they want to in the world. Um, we had people showing up for Smut Slam online that had never been because they could never get there. Wow. Yeah, and we had people, and they had heard about, but they couldn't go. Or we had people, never mind, like even if you were to be like totally callous and like never mind people with disabilities, but like, I mean, I, I do, but like uh, out of network, people who are in cities where I would never get to yeah. are showing up, right? Hawaii, that's never going to be on my regular tour route, you know? Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a combination of expanding your audiences, but also making things accessible. And you have to commit to that. Um, and I've learned to really enjoy doing online slams. Um, I'll be lying if I say I can't wait to get back to that crowd surfing energy that you get from in-person slams. But I'm doing my best to recreate and um, reimagine what that energy looks like online. And that remains important to me. You and I are just so similar. Like, I'm surprised, actually, because obviously when you're at an event, we didn't have a lot of chance to actually sit and just have a drink and catch up and get to know each other, whereas now we have. But we're so similar because I've been doing... I've got four drag children in the drag community who two of them were doing drag live and two of them wanted to start drag during the pandemic. I was going to start a drag show every Wednesday night at a venue, the pandemic hit. I'd kind of said to them, right, I just need to get my ME finished because I was studying part-time. And I just need to work out if I can get an online job part-time now because all my, my DJ money was taken away because I was DJing four nights a week and I wasn't making it. So I had to work out all this in my head. 
And when it came to after summer, I was like, I had nothing lined up. I had to go a lot of professional work over summer. So I was really lucky. But during autumn, I was like, I haven't got anything to do. And they were like, we should do the digital, we should do the show digitally on Twitch. And one of them was like a gamer. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm keen for this, like being on camera and we'll need to get a moderator because people make nasty comments on newsfeeds. Yep. And they were just like, oh no, but we can all like band together and do it. And I went, do you know what? I was like, that spirit is why they're my kids. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That is me out in the world. So I thought, well, do you know what? These are my children, so let's do it. I'll do it for them. And we, the first night we had over 90 people watch and I just shared yes. it on social media. I didn't think anyone would watch it. 90 people. And it's not about the numbers for me because sometimes I've DJed and had 250 plus. Sometimes I've yeah, DJed sure. five and I'm not doing it for the validation at this point. I'm doing it to keep me going. And the digital drag show, it was like the last one we had, um, I think, 60 and they were all saying, oh, you know, it wasn't as good as normal. And I kind of said to them, listen, that is better than nothing. If we've got even one person watching this, enjoying it, we're making their life better during this pandemic. Yes, yes, so, yes. So it's so interesting. I'm glad you've been doing online events because I've seen mm -hmm. you had, but for the listeners who maybe weren't aware and maybe want to then go, well, do you know what? I'll go to an online event because for me, I knew you were going to talk about the disability access, so I'm really glad you did. But for me, like, I've been working um, with the National Fair Scotland and I've been working with a director who's based in London. And I never would have probably worked with her because she wouldn't have been here. But because yep. things are on Zoom, it's like even my MA, there are people in China, people in the States, and we were all together. And I thought, well, actually, I don't believe in that whole po toxic positivity. I don't. But at the same time, I go, well, when we actually sit down and look at it, these are things that wouldn't have happened. So I think yes. the people that can attend Smut Slam that couldn't have because of their um, accessibility requirements amazing yep. that they can now but the people that maybe would have never met each other from different cities I think that's yes. oh I actually I think that's beautiful so yeah and and it's even been true within the, the smut slam network because of course we have we have hosts as far away as Victoria British Columbia and Canada on the west coast of Canada right we have uh we have me we have producers up there in Scotland we have um people in in uh, Montreal, Quebec, we have someone down in Chile, right? Um, and like we, uh, Australia, Los Angeles, you know, um, we are not going to have a chance to be together maybe ever all together because it's like, we're never gonna run like the huge fucking, you know, massive conferences. It's never gonna be like that. But here uh, online, because everyone was so used to being online and making events happen online, we had our first in-house retreat and training session over a weekend in January. We were working on skills and talking about marketing and talking about skill sharing. And, and we would not have done that, I think, uh, it, because we were all caught up in our show production. We were all caught up in like live events, live events, live events. It's like, there is something to be said for, I wouldn't want, I don't want it to happen this way. There's nothing to be said for the COVID, fuck that shit. But there is something to be said for what emerges when you have a chance to slow down. Wow. Do you know? Yeah, that when you when you have to slow down, yeah. and this is not toxic positivity. When you have to slow down, it 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 opens you up. I think to, okay, what can I do? What is happening here? How can I use this now? Which is not to say that you have to do that. No. Which is not to say that you have to be productive. Um, I I definitely think that um, a certain amount of retreat and hiding under the duvet is entirely like a valid response to what is terrifying, right? Um, but um, when the pace of everything has slowed down, uh, what what opens up in that 
in that stillness and that openness, right? And and what I found and what I think some other people have found too is like, well, what are some things that I was kind of not doing because I was so busy with the other stuff, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to get on that positivity train because it can be real toxic. But there's no denying what I experienced, which is like, mm. uh, you know, I was doing between five and seven or eight smut slams a month. Wow. Right? I had four monthly slams, five monthly slams, plus two or three more yeah. uh, rotating through. And it's like, that's a lot of travel. That's mm. a lot of hustle. Yeah. What happens when the hustle's not there? You were probably burnt out as well. Like I was burning yeah. out because I was just overworked. And I think for me, I, I went on my pure spiritual awakening during the pandemic where I got in touch with myself at who I was at core and stuff. And I totally know what you're talking about. And, and it's that kind of like, I think they say it's fight or flight or freeze response that humans have that some people are like, right, we need to do everything we can. Some people are like, oh, I just don't want to deal with this right now. Or some people are like, I don't <laughs> clue what I'm doing under the duvet. Like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Everyone's just like, everyone's got their own response. I think mm -hmm. the thing a couple of guests for season three have spoken to me about is the ability to say things are not going well and I can't is such a powerful yes. thing that yes. some can't do that, but some people can. And it's, I think it's really useful. And I just think people like you and myself, um, not to be egotistic at all, but entertainment is, is keeps people going. It gives people hope. It gives people hope. Yeah. So I totally think it's... Um, a great, a great comment to make. We're going to touch, we've only got a couple more questions left. This has mm, been such mm, an absolute... Yeah. Um, what would you kind of say to young people that are artists now maybe training, wanting to pursue performing, writing, and what would you say to maybe members of the Smut Slam community who are listening, who maybe are feeling a bit down and out just now? What would you kind of say to them? Um, I would say uh, that now is the time when... Uh, things are shaken up, right? Things got really shook up, everything rattled out. And um, in some ways that has, a, that has a way of, that can have a way of consolidating power and resources in the higher places, right? So like the real prominent national theaters, the real prominent dance companies, those in a crisis when money's tight, oftentimes things get concentrated there. But on the other hand, um, working in a pandemic and looking at what, what art is possible. Um, there's a lot of room for experimentation for, um, there's a lot of room for, um, outdoor site specific. There's a lot of room for, um, heavily tech influenced stuff that maybe in previous times would have been like, that's not really theater. That's not really mm. <laughs> that whatever it is, whatever it is, your art form is, people will say, well, that's not really, meh, meh. Uh, and, and there's room now because of the way things have shaken up, there is room for you to get in there and experiment and people aren't going to be so dismissive in that way about it because we've seen that like, this is the kind of thing that's out there. This is the kind of thing that is available even in times of crisis. I want to encourage um, people who are just getting started in performance or whatever, storytelling, what, you know, performance, entertainment. Um, two, start now and diversify your skill and tech awareness now. That's one thing that's been hardest for me during the pandemic is adapting to new tech. This is where I definitely feel my age a lot. And it's not because I'm stupid. It's not because I'm a boomer. I'm not. I'm Gen X, all right? Fuck off. Um, but like, I, you know, like I am, I have always been a slow, a slow adapter, a late adapter with tech. And when things like 
yeah, like, so the online stuff doesn't come easy to me. Um, what I, my solution has been to find other people who are, are good at it and get and enlist them into support roles. But like for you as performers, it's, it's this last year has just shown like you want to get, you want to keep your skill set broad. You want to keep your tech awareness like kind of fresh. And if you don't want to deal with the tech stuff, um, then find people who you can trust to like be on your team for tech stuff. Because um, I hate to say it, right? But like, we talk about going back to the new normal. It's never going to be what it was. Mm. And almost certainly what's ahead of us is more of the same. Not maybe of the same, not of the same magnitude, but there we are, we are in the end times. Ooh, this got dark really quickly. We are in the end times. Um, we, this is a, a, a very dramatic time for earth. Um, and things, bad things are happening everywhere and things will start happening. Like this is just part of, of the disruption. Um, if that makes sense. That like we are very, we, we're, we are, I don't mean end times in like the sense of biblical destruction, but like it's a hard time and there will be disruptions. There will be more pandemics. There may be civil disruptions. There may be resource disruptions. Um, and it behooves us as performers to, to learn to be as flexible and light on our feet as possible about what entertainments can be done, uh, how we can do them, who our network is, where we can do them, um, and just not settle into like, I can't wait to get back into the theater. Neither can I, but um, it's going to be harder than it was, and we need to keep aware to other options that are out there. Yeah. Everything we've learned in the last year, we need to hang on to, not throw it away, not put it in mothballs, like we're never going to use it again. We will. Yeah, I'm so glad because I've been saying that to people that, you know, one day they're going to teach digital theater and performance in unis. You know, there was like nearly two years of it. It's not something that there has been a bit of a divide in the UK, actually, and especially in Scotland, that there have been people that the moment bars have opened have went, right, I don't want to deal the last 14 months now. And there have been people that have went, oh, no, like, like for example, myself, I had a bit of a brutal um, two days ago. I went for drinks with my friends at my old work mm. and I loved it. I had a great time seeing my friends who I hadn't seen since last summer. Yes. I had people that, who I would have called friends at the time, misgendering me because I changed my pronouns to they, them during the pandemic. And, <sighs> and I corrected inside this, but there felt a bit like an entitlement of, well, I'm having a hard time, so I don't need to think about that. And I thought mm -hmm. to myself, there's a lot of selfishness in there. I don't quite like mm -hmm. that. But there is glimmers of hope and we are covering yes. hope in Afternoon Delight. And I ask every guest for season three, was there kind of one low moment in your life? It could be the pandemic, it could be anything that hope got you through. And I would love for you to share your answer if you have any. Um, I would say the low moments, one of the lowest moments of my life, um, certainly one of the ones that felt most tragic, like I'm not gonna get through this, how can I get through this? Um, I fell in love with a, um, with a British person, um, and we were constantly separated, um, because I just was doing my touring in North America and I couldn't get back to the UK and we saw each other, um, for, uh, for like a week or two total once every eight months. Right. And it was, and, and after like the first couple of times, it's like, oh, we want to be together, but we're broke artists. We can never be together. The UK government doesn't want broke people coming into the country and the mm. U ditto for the US. And so every eight months we had to go through the same sort of joy and parting. And when I knew that this person was who I wanted to be with, it was just 
uh, gut-wrenching. It was just soul-wrenching. Um, and I didn't know how I could do eight months. I didn't know how, I mean, in that sense, it's like, it wasn't a forever thing. It wasn't like, I don't know when this pandemic's going to end. But it was like, oh, parting again for another eight months. Um, and what got me through, it, it was like, yeah, it was hope, but we had to like nail it down. We had to make it something tangible because I just uh, couldn't do it otherwise. And two things we did there, and I think these are actually useful, transferable things to think about for yourself is one, we made a very tangible countdown. We had our own little website with a countdown clock and we would check in. Oh yeah, just cheesy preset uh, graphics or whatever. Every now and then I'd change it to be like, we're, you know, countdown to the uh, football finale or whatever. But like, you know, uh, we had a countdown clock and we would restart it as soon as, as soon as he went into the airport security, I'd go home and like start the timer again, right? And it felt like for fucking ever, but at least it was there. And the other thing that we had going on um, is we had something, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a hope chest. You know what a hope chest is? It's, it, it's an old, it's, you know, it's a mostly for like heterosexual married couples, but like the, the woman will keep like a big chest of like all the things that she will need as a wife, right? That's where you put all your fancy linens and all that stuff. Yeah. And um, we started a hope drawer. We were like, we know we want to move in together. We don't know where. We don't know how, but we want to move in together. We started a hope drawer. It was at his house. And when we, each of us buy something on Amazon, and I had it delivered to his house, it was maybe like a cutting board or a cheese grater or a spice grinder or a set of wooden spoons or a set of dishcloths. And we just kind of, over the course of a year and a half or two years, we accumulated tangible items and every now and then when we were talking on Skype he'd like bring out the thing that just arrived in the mail to go in the hope drawer and he'd show me the new set of dishcloths right and to have tangible objects to remind you of what you want it sounds very woo it sounds very like Pinterest boards it sounds like a little action bulletin board but I think there is something strongly to be said for having concrete things to remind you and I yeah, I, I think that I would. I think that I have probably some of those things myself lying around here. But uh, that's what I would recommend for people: something to grab onto as you're working your way out of it. <clears throat> Whatever despair you may be feeling is like find some little thing that that you can at least hold. Cameron, I have had so many guests on Afternoon Delight for three seasons. You are now the third person on Afternoon Delight to make me cry. Oh. <laughs> It was such a beautiful story. The last guest, Debbie Hannon, eh, had me crying. And oh. other guest in season two had me crying. So well done to the three of you. But what a beautiful, hopeful story. It's definitely up there with... I mean, I love all the hope stories, but that's definitely... Yeah. Sure. Um, but we're, we're literally at the end of the interview, Cameron. This has been incredible. Before we finish off with an inspiring quote, affirmation or lyric that you want to share, um, we do um, let you promote anything. Is there anything you'd like to promote that's coming soon? Yeah, um, we have, so like I said, Smut Slam is, Smut Slam Europe is running every other week. Our next Smut Slam is coming up on May 5th. Uh, that is at 8.30 Central European time, so 7.30 UK time. And tickets are pay what you can. Obviously, if you've got the resources, throw a lot of money in. If you're having like five people at your house, throw a lot of money in. But like, it's really there for people. We change our ticket process 
um, during the pandemics, like we make it op uh, open to people, whatever your situation. So pay what you can tickets for Smut Slam May 5th and every other week after that. That's on Eventbrite. And I can send you that link later if you want that. Um, and I would say that's the, that's the big one. Um, and I guess for me, the most inspiring thing that I share with Smut Slam every fucking time is this thing. I don't know if you remember um, where I have the whole room to shout out your life is awesome. Your life is awesome, you know, and uh, and that's that's true. I know you may not feel like whoever's watching, you may not feel like it is right now, but it really is. It's really amazing, and your life is awesome. So that's what I want to share with people. Cameron, your life is awesome, and you've been yes. a yes, delay. I've loved having you. Thank you for being an incredible star and <sighs> in this pandemic. Oh, it, I'm just doing my job, sir. <laughs> Cameron, you are doing your job, but you are absolutely doing your job well. You are helping so many people in the community and making them aware of consent, which is such an important conversation that I'm continuing to have with a lot of people. It was an absolute delight to have you on Afternoon Delight. Thank you for sharing your incredible work, especially Nerdfucker. I feel like I need to see that show. Um, all of your shows, to be perfectly honest, um, when you looked at websites like Cameron Moore and you kind of see these incredible pictures um, and they kind of just make you go, I want to see that, that, you know, in person. And we obviously have been doing digital work. Um, I'd spoke to Cameron afterwards about potentially coming on as a guest in their June Smut Slam and she was very keen, which is really exciting. And I just want to see people again in a live space and I want to see that Muse performance where it was live art and portrait art and I just yeah it was such an amazing interview and thank you for continuing to do what you're doing for the Smut Slam community online because it's a hard one you know a lot of people in the queer community especially actually are really feeling disconnected from everyone so the fact that you're continuing to do that despite how maybe emotionally draining it can get for you as an artist, like it is for myself doing sometimes all these Afternoon Delight episodes, I go, oh, I'm so tired. But do you know what? Like, every weekend I look forward to posting these. And this has, without a doubt, been one of the best highlights of my weekend this weekend to post this uh, and share your amazing work. Thank you for continuing to be amazing, Cameron. Lots of love to you. Next week, I have got two amazing people in the arts world. I have got the incredible Robert Miles from The Show Must Go Online talking about The Show Must Go Online and how I feel that his work gave a lot of actors a sense of hope. And I've got non-binary actor Emily Carding discussing their work up until now, working with people like Bryony Cummings um, in Hastings. They are just honestly incredible. There's so much to get through next week, but I can't wait to share it all. I'm away to have a cup of tea and to keep continuing doing what I'm doing and I hope all of you can continue to do so and take good care of yourselves because this week has been quite hard for a lot of people. So love and light to everyone. Stay safe and remember to breathe.